Mark 14 then, and we're beginning to read at verse 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives, and Jesus saith unto them, All ye shall be offended because of me this night, for it is written, I will smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. But after that I am risen, I will go before you into Galilee. But Peter said unto him, Although all shall be offended, yet will not I. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily I say unto thee, that this day, even in this night, before the cock crows twice, thou shalt deny me thrice, three times. But he spake the more vehemently, If I should die with thee, I will not deny thee in any wise. Likewise also said they all. And they came to a place which was called Gethsemane. And he saith to his disciples, Sit here, sit ye here while I shall pray. And he taketh with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be sore, amazed, and to be very heavy, and saith unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful unto death. Tarry ye here and watch. And he went forward a little and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee. Take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, not that I will, but what thou wilt. And he cometh and findeth them sleeping, and saith unto Peter, Simon, sleepest thou? Couldest thou not watch one hour? Watch ye and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The spirit truly is ready, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed and spake the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. Neither wist they what to answer him, neither knew they what to answer him. And he cometh the third time and saith unto them, Sleep on now, and take your rest. It is enough. The hour is come. Behold, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, let us go. Lo, he that betrayeth me is at hand. So, Gethsemane then. So this is an event that is both, don't know how to describe it, amazing and sad. We're at a point where everything has been revealed. Jesus' earthly ministry, uh, the, the teaching, the healing has come to an end. The conclusion of the Jewish era and its temple religion has been announced by Jesus. And now we see these events unfolding which will end in the death of Jesus Christ, just as he predicted. His blood was about to be spilled. And this would be a powerful symbol uh, of this new covenant that his, his death and his resurrection would launch. Having given his followers this, you'll remember this, um, this small ritual, this simple act of remembrance, that sharing of the bread and the wine. Um, he gave that to, so they could remember him. And having done that, that the Passover feast now came to an end and the proceedings 
are brought to a close with the singing of a psalm. So the party leaves the city. Uh, they make their way over to the Garden of Gethsemane. Some people think. Some people think um, claim that the, the, the name Gethsemane is derived from uh, two words, which 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 make which mean uh, olive press. So I, I'm not a hundred percent sure that's that's correct, but it's uh, you can see why it's an attractive thought because it was here that Jesus repressed beyond measure. And it's here Jesus has determined to pray. It's um, it's quite noticeable how the, the prayers of Jesus, they're so prominent in Mark, at the, at the beginning, the middle and the end of his ministry. And he obviously prayed many times each day. But that, that gives us, leaves us with the impression that his prayer was carried out you know, throughout all his ministry. Now, we just read that the whole group goes over. The whole group goes over, but most of them are told to wait behind. He, he takes three of... I, I think I think he takes those three... Not, not because... I don't think necessarily it's to teach that those ones you know, needed to be taught a lesson more than anyone else, but rather that they seem to be close associates with him because he, he chose them three when he went in. Remember, he went in to raise Jairus's daughter, and he went in the house, and everyone was left outside, and the door was shut, and he just brought in. There was the mother. Uh, there was a girl lying there. Uh, uh, there was there was uh, Jairus. There was um, um, Peter, James, and John again, and uh, it was those three that went up the mountain at the uh, Transfiguration. So, I think they were just close. Uh, particularly close to, to him well when he makes his way to the place of prayer he leaves those three behind he, he goes he goes I don't know maybe another 50 yards further on by himself he's on his own now and he, he needs to be alone as he prepares to talk to his father in heaven in our Bible study last Wednesday evening we, we were looking at the way Moses approached God in his uh, encounter with God on, on the mountain and we described sort of different levels of access to God. There was the general people, then there was a select few, and then there was just Moses. Moses was the only one who got to speak to God face to face. And we, we noted that was a similar arrangement in the the tabernacle. You had an outer court, then you had a holy place, and only the priests could go in there. And then within there was the the holy of holies, the, the most holy place. And access to that was restricted to the high priest alone and so as we see as we see this band of followers of Jesus being thinned out it, it brought these things to my mind and it, it sort of emphasises the solitude that he was involved in when he was going through this torturous torturous uh, prayer of his he, because it was it was Jesus alone who was worthy to suffer and die for the sins of mankind. And so he had to go through these things alone. He would be abandoned by his friends. And when he got to Calvary, there was not even the comfort of the Holy Spirit to lighten the suffering one iota. At least here... Uh, 
at least here we were told in the one of the other gospels that an angel was sent to while he was in a garden praying and an angel was sent to to support him and encourage him well this prayer marks Jesus's final moments of freedom even while even while he was still in the middle of a prayer Judas the betrayer with a big mob behind him is making his way to Gethsemane to ID Jesus so they could arrest him all, all for money the things people do for money same today well our focus today though is going to be on this great example of submission uh, to God that Jesus gives us and there'll also be some encouragement to well to challenge ourselves as as we consider the the, the real failures of the disciples so the first point then is we're going to look at Jesus's submission is is real faith in God I know you've no doubt read this account many times you've probably heard a number of sermons on what happened in Gethsemane but I don't know if it's possible to, to read this again today and still not be affected by it never in his life has Jesus felt like this and not even Mark not even Mark who was inspired of God to write these things can can truly describe the terror that Jesus felt and we see all kinds of verbs describing him as deeply distressed troubled overwhelmed with sorrow and so on he, he Jesus himself even tells the disciples that he feels so full of anguish he feels he might die of it but what what exactly was it that caused so much torment okay the thought of dying isn't pleasant but he wouldn't react like that to the thought of just you know his life coming to an end he could just sit and accept it calmly uh, at least as well as those uh, stoics did well was it the knowledge of what he'd go through before his actual death I'm sure he was aware of the reputation the Roman soldiers had for, for brutality and he knew he'd be strung up on a tree and, and, and left there until he died but I don't think even those account for the intensity of his soul's agony above all those things what he feared more than anything else in the world was his own father he feared God you see he understood what the all holy God does when he punishes sin and Christ would have the punishment of millions of people redirected onto him only he knew the ferocity of the wrath of God that he would soon face and even Mark with the Holy Spirit guiding him didn't have the words in the language to fully express the depths of this state of, of being terrified there he was 
praying. He threw himself on the ground. Abba, he said. Abba, it's an Aramaic word. It's a, it's a more in, intimate sort of title than father. Father's respectful. But in our culture as well, it's it's usual for us to use uh, intimate words for our fathers, assuming we have the blessing of having a, a decent enough relationship with them. You know, we'd maybe say, Dad. I mean, <laughs> I don't know anyone who says father. <laughs> you know, may, maybe really, really uh, posh people do. And believe it or not, you know, it's this same intimate word that Jesus used that believers are encouraged to use when they approach God in prayer. It says here in Galatians 4 and 6, And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's the same thing, same title Jesus used, and it just shows us how exalted we are. Our adoption into the family of God is so complete. We get to use the exact same title of affection that the Son of God uses. It looks like one of the disciples, I think I think probably Peter, he, over, he overheard bits of Jesus' prayer before he fell asleep. And then he relayed that to Mark as he was uh, composing his, um, his gospel. And so we get a glimpse of some of the communication between Jesus and his father. And what we hear astounds us. Now, okay, Jesus came to the, this earth primarily to die. The prophets of old knew it. Uh, he knew it. He'd been trying to get the reality of it across to his disciples for I don't know how many years. And, and he was unswervingly committed to carrying out his mission of sacrificing himself for the sins of his people. But now, as he starts to get singed by the fires of God's anger, the anxiety starts to rise within him. Despite all that he knew of the necessity of his suffering, he asks his father in prayer if the whole thing could be called off. And we see in verse 36... He asked his father if there's, there's any way he could escape this awful destiny. In, in his human weakness, he didn't want to go to Calvary. Maybe he hoped the father could come up with a plan of redemption which didn't involve this immense suffering. And so it was in those three seasons of prayer that he wrestled with the father. Then we see this change taking place in the manner of his prayers. Such was his faith that his attitude became more and more aligned with God's will. He knew what needed to be done. He knew his father couldn't break his promises by saving his son's life. And Jesus knew, even witnessing such fear and horror in the soul of his own son, God the Father, still stood ready to drown his own son in the floods of his own wrath. This was a victory for Jesus. We're not told this, but I expect I expect Satan was there, you know, pouring everything he had into stopping this plan. But in 
his submission to the will of God, Jesus dealt a mighty blow to the enemy. Now Jesus had accepted his destiny. It was just a matter of time now before Satan's kingdom would be dealt that fatal blow when Jesus um, died for sinners. What a motto. Let your will be carried out, dear Father. We read all about this episode in the New Testament, in, in Hebrews actually, in Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. Hebrews 5 and 7 and 8 says, Who, in the days of his flesh, it's Jesus of course, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared, though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. Well, I want to really emphasise this. You know what happened in the garden was not an act. It was not a. An, it was not a, a theatrical display whereby you know Jesus pretended to be in turmoil just so that he could uh, have this lesson recorded that you know God's will prevails in the end. If your doctrine and beliefs about Jesus force you to deny the reality of Jesus's inner upheaval, then your beliefs are wrong. As we, as we uh, think about these things, it's it's quite natural that it's quite natural that those doctrines would come to mind about the two natures of Jesus Christ, and so throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen examples of Jesus's human weakness, and we've also seen examples of his divinity. But it's in, especially in Gethsemane and at Calvary, that we see those two natures really come to the fore at the same time, and we see this. Don't know how else to describe it. Uh, uh, an inner sort of conflict, if you like. I dare not go any further, but this is what we read. I mentioned to you several weeks ago about how people can have an imbalanced view of these two natures. And th there were there were heresies in it right back in the early church, you know, in the first few centuries after Jesus. Uh, heresies about about the nature of Jesus and and that's carried on and had its an effect and it's it's people are still inclined to believe the same old things so on, on the one hand you have liberal christianity and they they tend to think of jesus as human but not divine they will say he's a great human the best of humans but not divine reformed folk on the other hand will often emphasize jesus's divinity at the expense of his humanity both of these are wrong. <clears throat> and as one of those reformed folks, probably with an audience, if there's an audience today, probably with an audience of of mostly, you know, reformed folk, broadly speaking. And so I think I should address the fault that we're more likely to make. See, we have this very high view of God, don't we? And so we're more likely to err on the side of Jesus' divinity. And I'll simply repeat what I said a few weeks ago. The humanity of Jesus is equally important as his divinity. You should avoid thinking of Jesus as God in a body and sort of from time to time switching off his almighty power. 
just so that he looks like a, a proper human. That's wrong. You shouldn't even say that he's, you know, he's, um, you know, 60% divine and 40% human. That's also wrong. He's fully man and fully God. And these two natures are not independent of each other. It was back in the year uh, 451 AD or 450 AD. um, The Council of uh, Chalcedon met and it was there that they hammered out a doctrine about the person of Christ. Uh, This is what they said. They said Jesus is to be acknowledged in two natures, inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably. The distinction of the natures being in no wise taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons. So... You may have hoped for a clearer description, but <laughs> uh, it's precise anyway, isn't it? It's precise, and it's saying that we we shouldn't think like the um, the the uh, the old uh, Nestorians. They believed that yeah, there was a there was a divine person and there was a human person, and they were separate. So although Jesus walked around looked like one entity, they were two separate sorts of people. It was that that was wrong, and. It was a, a, a similar sort of error with Gnosticism that we looked at quite a while back, uh, where uh, the, the the true Son of God uh, left, abandoned the the body he he was he was using, so the real Jesus went back up to heaven and abandoned his body, which was just a body. That's that's also that's also a, an error. Well. We've looked at that amazing episode with Christ uh, submitting himself to God and bringing his will fully in line with God's. And now we'll look at how the disciples of Jesus failed him. Now you'll see in verse 27. Whoops. You see in verse 27, Jesus tells them they're all going to abandon him. You might remember when he announced the existence of a betrayer, Judas. He made... um, he made the point that the betrayal would be carried out according to scriptural prophecy. And it's the same here. Uh, Jesus quotes from Zechariah 13, and it talks about God striking down the shepherd and seeing all the sheep scatter. Well, why such a, a drastic uh, move as, as striking the shepherd down? Well, if you read Zechariah 13 later for yourself, and look at the larger context, you'll see God's purpose in in that was ultimately for the benefit of the sheep because the remnant of genuine sheep would return and be blessed, you see, and be refined by the whole process. And there's even a a note of comfort in in the prophecy itself. Although the the striking down of, of Jesus, the great shepherd, was inevitable it would all be done for their good so brothers and sisters it's it you should remember it's because of jesus being struck down back then that that you are where you are today if you're a believer with all the 
gospel promises treasured up in your heart. And in addition to this, you'll also see in verse 28 that Jesus comforts them by uh, promising his resurrection and visiting them in Galilee. So, instead of believing Jesus and seizing hold of these comforting promises, Peter jumps up to make an objection. Peter is sure, you can see in verse 29, he's more loyal than the rest of them. They might let you down, but I won't. Why are we not surprised? It's Peter. Jesus would teach him a lesson. He makes a very specific prediction about Peter. Before a cockerel crowed twice the following morning, Peter would deny him. Not once, not twice. Peter would betray his friend and saviour three times. In their culture, night time was the period right up until dawn. And cockerels can crow through the night. We we know all about that when we accidentally bought <laughs> bought some chickens for for some eggs, but they they grew up and they decided that they were cockerels, and so <laughs> they uh, were crowing at all silly hours, um, and so we had to quickly give them away. Now they do go throughout the night, even when it's still dark, but. It, the, the the sort of the frequency the intensity of the of the crowing sort of increases as it gets nearer to dawn and the ancient peoples were able to use this uh, just to give them a rough guide of what time it was and Peter's act of cowardice may have been all over even before the sun rose so we see in verse 31 that Peter even now won't back down even having all those specific details of how he was going to deny Jesus given to him he just steps up his protests a notch and says no even if they kill me even if they threaten to kill me I won't deny you the thing is Peter the thing is listener it's easy to make such boasts about our love for God in times of ease it's only in times of trial that we see the true nature of our love for God. Well, it wasn't long before Peter starts to regret his confidence because we see him failing Jesus even before he met with any trouble. Between Jesus' um, uh, prayer times, he, he took a couple of breaks and he went back to the disciples to see how they were getting on he was expecting them to have stayed awake and been in earnest prayer on his behalf. Instead, he discovers they'd all fallen asleep and they were speechless. It says in verse 37, And being tired is an excuse. I found an interesting description in one of the Bible paraphrases. It says the disciples were drugged with grief. And you think, well, why is it mentioned grief? Well, that's verified by Luke's account which says that in Luke's account one of the reasons they were so tired it says is through sadness can you believe I had to go and look this up I just assumed you know the disciples were tired because they'd had a long day they'd had a nice big you know hearty meal maybe a glass of wine afterwards and now they're sat down relaxing 
it turns out that fatigue is a is a is a is a recognised uh, symptom of, of 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 sadness of of grief, for example. So perhaps perhaps this was a sign that you know finally they'd accepted the reality. Their master was going to die, just like he said. Now look, Jesus, Jesus here, he's not trying to, you know, make the disciples suffer sleep deprivation. He knew they needed sleep every night. He slept himself. He knew that if a person didn't sleep, they would get sick and die. He invented sleep. But this was a special occasion. He simply asked them to make an exception and stay awake with them. Just for a few more, a few extra hours tonight, and pray. But he sees this lack of determination in them, and he warns them. You know, you be watchful and always pray. He says in verse thirty-eight, and we should take notice of this too. We we might venture to say that the bulk of our sin is caused by spiritual sleepiness. Okay, and I know. We do sometimes intentionally sin, and that, that is awful. But it's this weakness and lack of commitment that's the cause of most of our sin. Remember, being spiritually lazy is our default behaviour. If you do nothing, that's what will happen. You'll become spiritually lazy. There has to be a conscious putting on of our armour our spiritual armour each day. There has to be this daily effort to remain alert and to pray strenuously. When Jesus' prayer had finished and he went back to see the tree over the, the, the final time, they'd fallen asleep again and he uses this cutting sarcasm and he tells them they may as well go back to sleep. Three times Peter failed to watch him pray. Three times he would fall into temptation and disown Jesus. No wonder Jesus calls him Simon, his old name, rather than Peter, you know, the, the rock. Well, looking at this behaviour of the disciples, I have to ask the question, would any of us have done any better? Is our commitment to God so great it would have acted like a spiritual adrenaline keeping us wide awake in prayer? Truth is, I doubt we'd have fared any better. But at least we have that bad example and we can learn from it. We can we can let it remind us daily how prone we are to slothfulness and that we must do something about it. Several years later, um, the same Peter would write this, first Peter five and eight Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Vigilance. You know, it, I think it says something of the trustworthiness of Mark's gospel, that, that he's so honest. I mean, if you were trying to put the best spin on these events, you certainly wouldn't mention that God manifest in the flesh was having second thoughts about going to Calvary. Neither would you include details of such great failings in his followers, in, <laughs> in, in, in the sort of this important band of followers. 
what do we have here then well we see the great shepherd we see the great shepherd about to be struck down according to prophecy we see that it was his own heavenly father who would deal the fatal blows and just like in Zechariah the shepherd was innocent his willingness to go through all this was because of his love for the sheep that is his elect people and despite all these terrible things about to happen the disciples at least were given some words of comfort they'd see their master again soon why is it Mark says the reunion would take place in Galilee it says that in verse 28 I mean Jerusalem is now out the picture you see and his um, his reappearance in Galilee was meant to be symbolic he just announced a new covenant his resurrection was the confirmation of it and his resurrected self would go to that region where he revealed so much of his, his, his power during his time uh, through exorcisms through healings and so on and also Galilee was an ethnically very diverse region and this would show that this new covenant was an inclusive one gathering in the souls of men and women from all around the world the disciples they knew they were a privileged bunch and it's now that we experience um, well it's now that we see them experience um, well the other side of the coin this other aspect of being a follower of Jesus those who receive much from God are expected to give more more of their own selves maybe required to make heavier sacrifices well I want to end with just a few words of encouragement regarding prayer if Jesus teaches us anything in this episode it's about the importance of prayer now because we are encouraged to pray without ceasing and so many of us will will remember that and throughout the day we'll 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 throw up these quick prayers to God these very brief prayers mostly in our heads and and that's good it's um it's a good habit to to, to get into if you've just had something to eat you've 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 arrived home and you've been kept safe on your journeys it's good it's good to just express your appreciation to God for things like that but having said that I believe we all still need to make time for a, a different type of prayer one which takes time one that involves emotional and psychological effort there are so many things to pray about and it's and as well as that it's often necessary to wrestle with God in prayer over a single issue of importance <clears throat> well taking Jesus as our example I want us to encourage ourselves to to understand how we can align our will with God's so I've just got these three points firstly we need to be asking that we should know God's will so that might sound a bit strange but we often don't know what God's will is so we can't go and pray according to his will we need to first ask him to show us 
what his will is in the first place. And so we read in Romans 8, 26 and 27, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for, as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. <clears throat> and he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. We know not what we should pray for, as we should. And so we can go to God and ask him, show us your will. There's also then asking according to God's will, because once we know what God's will is, then we can go and pray and make sure what we're asking doesn't contradict his will. Make sure our requests are proper. In John's first letter, and chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, And this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we desired of him. It's an incredibly bold promise, isn't it? And it's true. Uh, if we ask things according to God's will, he will give them to us. See how important it is to know what his will is. And finally, we also need to be asking God for help to carry out God's will. To carry out his will in terms of uh, obedience. We, we ask God for things for other people, but we ask for ourselves too. And one of the ways, one of the things we ask for is that we might know how to day by day obey him. And in Psalm 143 and verse 10, it says, Teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. The land of uprightness. What a great saying. So we've had, um, we don't know what we should pray for, so we ask for guidance. Then we ask God for things according to his will, with the confidence that he will give them to us. And now we are asking to be taught God's will so that we might be upright in our behaviour too not just uh, inwardly so today we can learn from these disciples we can let their behaviour be a warning to us to remain watchful to remain vigilant to be daily in fervent prayer and mostly 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 especially can we learn from Jesus Christ himself in every aspect of our Christian lives? Let this be our motto. Lord, let your will be done, not mine. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Well, folks, we had some technical issues this morning so I'm sorry if you couldn't watch live on Sermon Audio and you had to use catch up but still the Lord knows and we we trust we trust that he, all things are done for our good too so New Road people I won't see you on Wednesday remember I won't see you on Wednesday that is cancelled but hopefully 
all the tech working properly we'll be back again next Sunday morning God willing so until then goodbye to everyone and God bless